Hi, and welcome to Declarations. I'm Matt Mamoudi, and I'll be your host on this episode. Today, we're bringing you a special episode on abortion rights in Europe. If you've listened to previous episodes of the pod, you will have noticed that we touched upon the issue in our episode on reproductive rights. Nevertheless, we are far from doing the issue justice. It's important that we keep talking about certain issues in the pod, in our homes, and with our friends and colleagues, as no real change can manifest if there are simply short-lived trending hashtags or ideas. In this episode, we are joined by Helen Jennings and Caitlin DeJode, who are organizing a conference on the development of abortion rights in a changing Europe. Helen, Caitlin, and their team want to bring together scholars, activists, and experts on the matter to talk about how we can develop a meaningful framework through which abortion rights, amidst Brexit and Ireland's referendum on the Eighth Amendment, can be realized. One thing that struck me with their approach is the conference's invitation to pro-choice and pro-life lawyers to have an open discussion on the debate. In today's climate, it can be difficult to reconcile our differences on crucial matters, often to the detriment of issues being dealt with altogether. The panel and I are really excited to hear about the background to the conference, the intricacies of the issue, and how Helen and Caitlin envision to bridge the gap. I'm also joined by a single panelist today, Daniel Ferguson. Welcome to the show. My name is Helen Jennings. I'm a second year undergraduate law student and I'm an Irish woman and a Northern Irish woman. Since last summer, I've been organizing a a conference on the development of abortion rights in a changing Europe, which will take place this September 28th in the law faculty here in Cambridge. We are currently accepting abstract submissions for papers to be presented at the conference and conducting a crowdfunding campaign to raise money to make this event happen. In the interest of transparency, it's important that I state from the outset that when I talk about this issue, I do so wearing two hats. As a citizen of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and as a woman, this issue is a personal and a political one for me. I'm pro-choice, I'm active in campaigning to reform abortion law in Northern Ireland, and to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution. I work closely with the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign um, to do this. However, I'm also convening this conference, and in doing so, I wish to welcome academics, practitioners, and early career researchers from all sides of the abortion debate to bring their arguments to the table. We're welcoming submissions from individuals who identify with the pro-life movement. This is really important to us. I think the best way to reconcile my own opinions with the aims of the conference is simply to be honest about them and hope that people recognize that when I say I want to create an even-handed event, I mean it. My whole team means it. We're engaged with the debate to different degrees and we're a group of people which includes those of different opinions within the abortion question. But we're united by a desire to generate constructive debate and most importantly, generate new academic content on this issue. This even-handed approach is crucial to our whole undertaking in organizing the conference. We don't want to live in an echo chamber of ideas. I want to touch base on your even-handed approach again. I think we live in a moment that is easily characterized as a time where it's convenient to turn towards the reproduction of similar ideas. Drawing a little bit on that, I want to hear about why this conference is important now. I absolutely agree with what you've said there. I mean, this conference would have been a lot easier for me to put on if I had decided just to have the pro-choice perspective. I know plenty of academics, plenty of activists who I could fill a room with, we could have a jolly old time, 
and um, all hear our own opinions, repeat it back to each other. Um, but that's not what this is about. That's not properly generating academic content. Um, all of those opinions are, of course, worthwhile. I know that. I share them. Um, and I want to see them aired on a, um, on a platform that's considered important. I want to see them aired in Cambridge. But I also want to bring new perspectives to the table, perspectives that I haven't heard before. I haven't heard a legal argument for restrictive abortion laws. I really haven't. I've heard moralistic arguments, I've heard philosophical arguments, but I haven't heard a legal argument. That's what I want to bring out at this conference. So the provision of abortion services for women, including the extent to which one can consider abortion a right, is definitely one of the foremost human rights issues facing women across the UK and Ireland and across Europe today. I think this issue deserves the full engagement of our best legal minds. And to this end, the conference will be entirely focused on the legal frameworks in place, their interaction with human rights law, and the potential of recent legal and political developments and litigation to change the law. The conference will explore what human rights law has to say about abortion in 2018, and will give consideration to issues including the upcoming referendum in the Republic of Ireland on the Eighth Amendment, and the impact of Brexit on women in Northern Ireland. However, discussion won't be limited to the legal framework in place in Ireland and Northern Ireland, even though, of course, I'm particularly interested in those. Um, <laughs> and, um, and although the issue is at the cutting edge of legal debate there, papers are welcome on any topic following under, falling under our title. What European as well as global phenomena are currently in motion that you think makes this a particularly pressing matter now? You mentioned Brexit. Um, but I want to you know, pinpoint the exact sort of movements that are happening, which you think make this especially pressing. Absolutely. Well, I can speak most knowledgeably on the situation in Ireland and Northern Ireland, of course, where the legal frameworks governing abortion are highly contentious. There's a huge amount of campaigning going on to change the law north and south of the border. Abortion is effectively illegal in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, except in very restricted circumstances. The Abortion Act 1967 was never extended to Northern Ireland, so we're still governed by all of our favourites, the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, in conjunction with the Criminal Justice Act Northern Ireland 1945. In the Republic, the overriding legal framework is governed by Article 40.33, the, or the Eighth Amendment. To the Irish Constitution. The Eighth Amendment equates the life of the fetus to a life of the pregnant woman, and these frameworks have collectively been described as the most restrictive laws governing any medical procedure in Europe. If you're wondering what Article 3, 8, and 14 are... Article 3 is the prohibition of torture and inhuman treatment, Article 8 is the right to respect for private and family life, and Article 14 is the prohibition of discrimination. And 14, of course, only operates as a parasitic right in conjunction with another right, so a case has to come within the ambit of another right to trigger Article 14 as well, where discrimination is involved. So in the past year alone, there have been a number of high-profile cases brought before both UK courts, the European Court of Human Rights and the UN Human Rights Committee to challenge this legal framework on the grounds that the rights of women in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland are being violated. As recently as October 2018, the UK Supreme Court heard an appeal by the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission to have a declaration of incompatibility with Articles 3, 8 and 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights upheld in regard to the criminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland, in specifically in cases of rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormality. 
Judgment is awaited on this case, keenly awaited. And a referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution is upcoming this year, in May. And what's happening in Ireland is happening elsewhere. The movement in Poland is not over. They're facing increasing pressure from a socially conservative government for legal restrictions to be enforced. I mean, do I need to say any more than Trump? It's happening in, in El Salvador too, where women are being incarcerated for having miscarriages where they're suspected of inducing abortions. And just this week, a 14-year-old rape victim in Paraguay died during childbirth. And that's where abortion is forbidden unless giving birth threatens the life of the mother, which it obviously did in this case. Abortion law is clearly a cutting edge human rights issue worldwide. Absolutely. I suppose I'm a bit of a, at a bit of a peril here talking to two lawyers with the next question. We, we're speaking of, of this from a very legal perspective. What are the kind of legal frameworks that we can put into place or change? Obviously, it's a political issue in the sense that most things that require sustainable change require political action and sometimes quite drastic political action. And I'm, and I'm wondering here, crossing interdisciplinary boundaries, um, what kind of cultural changes, institutional changes and political changes do we need to see in tandem with the legal reform uh, that is necessary in order for us to start talking about progress. And I'm inviting both of you to, to speak to this as, as lawyers. So I'm sure my friend Caitlin later on in the podcast will deal a little more closely with the cultural and political activism that's going on. Um, and there's a huge, huge movement um, across Ireland and Northern Ireland and across the world in solidarity with that movement um, that's happening to change the law. This is really important because we can have legal change, but without cultural change. For example, see the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act. That was brought in in 2013 in Ireland, and it was supposed to protect the life of a woman when her life was um, in danger, was immediately at risk. Um, and it was meant to account for those cases and allow termination of pregnancy under very strict circumstances um, in that case. But what we saw when that when that legislation was enacted was that it didn't actually mitigate the effects of the Eighth Amendment. There have been several really tragic cases, um, including one of um, a foreign national who travelled to um, to Ireland after being raped in her home country, tried to access abortion there, was turned away, tried to go to England, um, was turned away at the border because she didn't have the right um, she didn't have the right documentation and then came back to Ireland and was refused an abortion despite being suicidal um, went on hunger strike to try and have a termination of this pregnancy and was forcibly fed instead of being given the reproductive health care that she I in my opinion deserved like what we can see here is even if we have legal change there's a chilling effect that operates in terms of medical practitioners in terms of support networks in terms of an entire culture of people that prevents proper healthcare being given even in the most extreme cases so what we need is legal change political change which is particularly difficult especially in northern ireland especially in Northern Ireland, when we don't have a government right now. <laughs> but we also need cultural change. Luckily, I believe that we're seeing cultural change in Ireland. And amnesty polling suggests that we are seeing cultural change even in Northern Ireland, which is considered a much more conservative, politically and socially um, conservative culture. Um, hopefully, 
all of those things will come together to create change and the movement seems to suggest it will um as caitlin will talk about but um yeah we can't have one without the other in my opinion I completely agree with 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 what uh, Helen was saying there uh, about the need for for cultural change and political change, uh, and I think in some respects that needs to almost precede legal change. One of the things that we talked about last week on this podcast was the margin of appreciation under the European Court of Human Rights, and and this notion that uh, the European Court will will allow states some some leeway in determining uh, certain controversial issues, and one of the fundamental underpinnings of that is this concept of European consensus uh, and where there is a lack of European consensus on a particular issue the court will typically offer a greater margin of appreciation. Uh, so in 2010 when uh, the Irish abortion issue came before the European court in the case of ABC versus Ireland the court did find that there was strong European consensus that abortion uh, needs to uh, be governed by a legal framework and provided for uh, in a legal framework citing that over 40 or I think 40 states in Europe uh, permit abortion uh, uh, and that the applicant uh, in this case from Ireland could have gone to any of those countries uh, to get abortion but but one of the, the issues that the court said there wasn't consensus on was, was when life begins uh, uh, and uh, across Europe uh, they said there wasn't consensus on that and, and so on that basis they essentially said that Ireland was entitled to, to, to a belief that, that life begins at conception and, and to restrictively limit abortion based on that on that sort of public moral and, and, and public belief and, and and so in many ways we we need to be encouraging cultural change to ensure that these these sort of court cases can move forward as well um, and and I think another issue that that, that does come up with this issue of, of culture uh, and and I sort of wanted to ask Helen about this was was, was how we achieve legalization and how we campaign for it and and one of the issues that I've always found quite interesting and, and, and quite tragic in some ways is how the US decision of Roe v Wade which uh, uh, as many of our listeners will probably know was the was the decision that uh, legalized abortion nationwide in in America uh, and it was a Supreme Court decision uh, and and it went against the views of a number of American states and, and that judgment is still in many ways criticized by some on the right in America as being a product of judicial activism. Its, its legitimacy is sort of almost questioned in certain regards. And we've seen with the appointment of Neil Gorsuch under Trump that there's, that, there's now a proactive effort to repeal Roe v. Wade and, 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 and to overturn it. Uh, and, and I think that brings me to this question of sort of judicial versus legislative. Uh, you, you talked about Northern Ireland and the Republic and the two, two slightly different approaches that are being taken. With the Republic, we've got a referendum coming up with uh, Northern Ireland, there's a Supreme Court case in, in, in the UK. And in fact, uh, the Northern Irish Legislative Assembly has voted against uh, permitting abortion in, in, in recent years. And, and so I wonder, do you think there is a particular approach that's, that's better than the other? Is, is there a danger in pursuing this through the courts against the will of the legislature? Firstly, I need to point out that failure to enact reform to abortion law through the Northern Ireland Assembly is a very difficult issue. All of the major political parties in Northern Ireland identify as varying shades of pro-life, positions which are historic, often based on religious grounds, and are not necessarily reflective of, a, of public opinion, as I've stated before. Um, the issues of rape, incest, and fetal fetal abnormality are the only areas where you can see some variation in stance. and. Interestingly, those are the areas which have come before the UK Supreme Court. Pro-choice people in Northern Ireland vote for those parties 
Firstly, because they feel they have no other option because they're the only parties who are likely to win an election. And secondly, because their votes depend on other issues. Most voting in Northern Ireland is still divided along green and orange, nationalist and unionist lines. People vote according to their community affiliation and stance on whether Northern Ireland should be part of the UK or reunified with the Republic, not necessarily on, um, on social policy issues. That said, it's not that democratic means have failed in Northern Ireland. Litigation is being pursued as only one avenue to change the law. In fact, democratic means are still being pursued despite the fact that we don't have a government at the minute. Stormont's unresolved political crisis has led to calls for a citizens' assembly in Northern Ireland to address controversial issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. And that will be similar to the Citizens' Assembly brought together in the Republic of Ireland to discuss abortion before those recommendations were brought before the Irish Parliament. This wouldn't be a democratically elected body, but it would be a representative one. And their goal would be to inform the government if and when power sharing resumes. We're still trying to do this democratically in Northern Ireland despite difficulties. Otherwise, what are we left with? Changing the law via litigation is effective, and of course, I'm in favour of it personally. I don't mind how the abortion law framework is changed, as long as it is changed. But changing the law via litigation does sidestep the valid personal concerns that many Northern Irish citizens do have about abortion, and that's important. What's worse on this front would be if the law was changed via direct rule from Westminster. That's a difficult one for citizens like me who are pro-choice and pro-equal marriage. Are we willing to sacrifice our self-determination to get it? Honestly, right now, with no prospect of our own government getting it together, I don't know. And that's quite a big thing to say. I don't know. I think some folks would have looked to the argument of representation at the assembly as one which could have furthered the general public who do fight for abortion rights. As of 2017, the Irish Assembly consists of 30% women, which is somewhat in line with the 35% of yeah, the English Parliament. There. Somewhat getting there. But of course, this isn't just an issue of gender representation. As you said, it's also an issue of religious belief, cultural beliefs, etc. Absolutely. What do you think should happen politically within Ireland? Uh, what kind of parties are we looking at engaging more? What portions of the country are we looking to engage more in order to flip or flip in the favour of pro-choice? I think young people will lead the change in Northern Ireland, honestly. I think young people thinking freely, moving away from the legacy of conflict mm -hmm. and that history that's ingrained in them through their communities that dictates how they vote. I think that that's how we'll change it. And in the Republic of Ireland, I think this, I think the next thing I'm going to say um, operates in the Republic and in the North it really will depend on having face-to-face -face conversations. That's definitely a um, tactic of the pro-choice movement in the Republic of Ireland. Things aren't going to change through Facebook posts and through letters through doors and through people appearing on TV to proselytize to the masses. It'll change through talking to your granny. It'll change through having that really difficult conversation with your mum. And it'll change through it'll change through talking to your dad about this. That'll be the more difficult one. Um, and we've seen this we've seen this with the same sex marriage referendum in the Republic of Ireland. Um, there was a huge emphasis in that campaign to have that conversation. Talk to your parents about it. 
um, because that is the only way that generations who have been affected by um, social conservatism, of which we really haven't been affected to the same extent. You know, the legacy of Catholicism, the legacy of the Troubles, those things do affect the younger generation. Of course they do. But I think that we are removed enough from it to vote more freely. And that's how we can change the opinions of older generations, just by having those difficult conversations. And to what extent can we talk about this larger conversation being had around abortion rights also being a gateway to to other rights and other forms of protection and, and contraception? Do you think that this is opening up the space to talk about that? What's the general view do you find currently in the public narrative surrounding contraception and, and surrounding just self-determination in general? Things are definitely opening up. And it's a conversation that hasn't really been had in Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, maybe since the 1983 referendum in the Republic. And I'm not even sure, of course, I wasn't around then, but I'm not even sure whether those conversations were had at that time. Um, I think the issue of contraception is definitely being talked about. I think personally that the issue of sex education in schools should be talked about. I think that if we want to fully protect women in this situation, if we want to... So basically this comes down to the fact that despite labels, everyone's opposed to abortion. Okay? Nobody wants to encourage people to have abortions no it's never it's never the best situation to be in it's about choice it's not about promoting abortion it's certainly not about as many campaigners would say um north and south of the border it's certainly not about murder it's about trusting women to make their own decisions and people can only make their own decisions if they're informed so I think a holistic view of this would include contraception, it would include sex education, it would include all manner of reproductive care, including that during pregnancy and especially um, when health issues are involved with pregnancy because that's a huge issue in Ireland as well. Um, and of course, abortion. It's a, All of those things are intertwined when we talk about this issue and we talk about women's rights to make decisions as to their own body. So I think it's I think it's definitely that holistic view is coming to the fore more um, and that is to be encouraged. One of the things I wanted to ask about was was the use of sort of rights by all side all sides of, of this discussion. You sort of have perhaps your pro-life side saying it's about right to life or it's it's a freedom of religion issue. You have uh, your pro-choice side saying it, it, it's a right to choose or a right to autonomy. And it always seems to be framed as this clash of rights. Um, and I was sort of wondering if you thought that that's a helpful framework to be to be using when we talk about this issue. Is rights even the right framework to be using? What, what do you think? So I think it will continue to be a really difficult question to answer until the court actually pins down what the right to life means in these cases. And until then, it'll keep being invoked to derail the conversation away from um, a woman's right to self-determination and autonomy, which has been pinned down. Right. Like we've had cases that have shown that Article 8 has been engaged and Article 3. So until the right to life issue is actually decided, I think that it's maybe not the most helpful framework. I mean, we have other cases that, deals of, that deal with clashes of rights, but 
in each of those cases, it's, you know, maybe um, the right to freedom of expression versus um, the right to manifest one's, uh, one's religious expression. Um, it's, it's discrimination and the right to manifest one's legal, one's religious expression. That's been a big um, issue recently, especially in the, um, the Asher's Bakery case in Northern Ireland, which was fun to witness. Um, so yeah, these, these rights have been pinned down in these cases. We know what they are. Um, and we have case law to guide us on that. But until until the European Court of Rights stops dancing around the issue, like they did in Vaux versus France, we're not going to get anywhere with a rights conflict framework. And I think it's really interesting in that regard that in, in ABC, the court says there's no right to abortion, but they do frame it as a right to autonomy. Yes. So, yeah. uh, uh, and by framing it as a right to autonomy under Article 8, leaving open that debate for clashes of rights and, and balances, mm. and uh, rather than saying there's a right to an abortion and that's the end of it. That's true, actually. Maybe the court would would benefit the entire conversation by also pinning down that issue and just saying that there is a right to abortion. That would be interesting. When cases are dealt with under Article 8, um, it's a little <laughs> we have a little joke in my um supervision group at the minute that um if you can't get it under one right you'll get it under article eight oh, yeah. <laughs> um so <laughs> i think that that has been used by the court on multiple occasions to where you know where there are difficult issues that don't fit perfectly so abortion cases don't fit perfectly under article three most of the time because they're seen to be this huge threshold this such a very high threshold for torture and inhuman treatment even though in one case they um this was highlighted in the nihrc judgment in the high court of northern ireland um in one of those article three cases um it was judged to be inhuman treatment where a prisoner's eyeglasses were taken off him in prison but a woman having to be stuck in this horrific situation where you have to travel for an abortion when you've been raped that's that's not in human treatment um we have interesting different standards applied um where contentious issues are involved um so yeah i that would be interesting yeah and we, we touched on that whole article 8 debate last week actually mm -hmm. how fitting issues like immigration into article 8 has led to the copenhagen declaration and mm -hmm. states saying actually the court should be backing off article 8 and and it's yeah, it, it's a really tough balance when you're when you're trying to fit these rights into it into the ECHR framework, but also making sure that states aren't leaving the court, states aren't rejecting jurisprudence. It's a really, really tough balance. So drawing on that, whether whether rights are the best framework to discuss this, as someone who's trained as a political theorist as opposed to a lawyer, I'm always going back to this idea that unless there is an international coercive authority of sorts in order to be able to discipline these rights in the absence of citizenship and in the absence of the nation state, then really rights become a really difficult way of talking about these issues because subject, again, to where you might find yourself by the sheer virtue of coincidence. You know, I was born into an Irish family or I was born into a Danish family. That makes you a subject to that particular citizenship, which is the only way through which we have any rights whatsoever is through being a part of this political community that is citizenship. And so to think about that more, more, more broadly, I suppose, is a provoking point whether the right to abortion and the right to bodily autonomy really brings up this larger question of what international structures that are needed in order for these rights to be secured 
internationally in order to be us to be able to talk about rights in the first place without them becoming kind of empty abstractions that are subject to their contextual nature. Personally, as a lawyer, as someone whose brain is currently melting under the weight of everything I have to learn for my second year undergraduate course, what I would say to that is the best way I've seen rights given substance is through interpretation. And that's interpretation through the courts. So whether that be domestically um, using the Human Rights Act or in the European Court of Human Rights, um, we can only really know what we're dealing with when we have judgments on it. And I think that's quite a beautiful thing because that can change. Those The substance of certain rights can change according to how society is developing and how we as a whole consider those rights to be manifest and enforceable. I was going to say, yeah, I... I again as a lawyer might have a little too much faith in 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 the courts but I, yeah. but, but I do believe that there is there is power in in, in what the ECHR can do and, and we only have to think about Dudgeon which is a a very famous case we, I mentioned it last week as well the decriminalization of of homosexuality in Absolutely. Ireland um and in Northern Ireland that is and and how that probably was a moment of change uh, in, and in, probably in wouldn't respects. have been wouldn't have been issued politically. Exactly. Honestly, and, yeah. and 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 so I think there, what well, we have to continue to engage in, in in much more broader conversations, and I think the that political and philosophical conversation really has to always come alongside the law. I think that striving for change through the courts can still be a very valuable and, and powerful tool right. to, to drive these issues forward. Mm. But not the courts alone. It's not the courts alone. No, system, I've, I've spent too much time with Matt to know that the courts alone are, are often not sufficient. <laughs> but, but I think I think today's conversation is is a great sort of manifestation of how cross sectional we need to be when we think about these things, including as as Helen pointed out, talk to your mothers, talk to your fathers, mm-hmm. talk to the courts, talk to your politicians. Literally engage all portions of decision making at society, at a macro level and a micro level. In the words of our Lord and Saviour, Troy Bolton, we're all in this together. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? I absolutely do. If our conversation today has piqued your interest and you want to hear more about these issues, I would encourage you to come to my conference. Uh, The development of abortion rights in a changing Europe will be hosted in the law faculty of the University of Cambridge on the 28th of September, 2018. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for coming along, Helen. Thanks so much. So in our next segment, we'll be talking to Caitlin DeJode. But before we jump into that, I'd like to make you guys aware, as you know, we've just launched our podcast on Anchor FM, where you're also able to leave us with voice messages. So if you have any ideas, criticisms, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, we're so interested in hearing from you and we can discuss these issues in our next episode. So please go check us out on Anchor or iTunes and SoundCloud, but particularly Anchor because we can hear your voices there and get back to you. On the 25th of May, Ireland will be holding a referendum on the question of whether to repeal the Eighth Amendment to its constitution, which bans abortion. I'm joined today by Caitlin DeJode, a Northern Irish activist who is currently serving as a media and communications convener for the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, the London branch of the Together for Yes campaign, which is advocating for a yes vote in this referendum. We're going to talk to her about her work as an activist on this issue and how it connects to wider issues of human rights. So Caitlin, just to start, could you please tell us just about your work with Together for Yes and your thoughts on the importance of this referendum and of abortion access in general in the context of human rights? 
Well, thanks very much for having me um, to begin. Um, so I'm a member of the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign. Uh, as you've already said, we're part of Together for Yes. That's the national civil society campaign in Ireland to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution. Um, the London branch is mainly made up of Irish people who've moved abroad, um, some from Northern Ireland, um, some from the Republic. Um, but we've also got some fantastic volunteers and organisers who have no personal connection to Ireland. Um, they just care passionately about uh, human rights and, and specifically um, the right to, to kind of have self-determination and, and make decisions about your own body. Um, so this referendum is hugely important. Uh, it would be a very historic opportunity um, to kind of have a, a really significant shift in the debate, I think, about abortion access generally. Um, but in Ireland, it's, uh, it's going to be monumental. Um, so without the removal of the eighth from the constitution, there is no prospect of reforming the current uh, laws, which are very highly restrictive. So abortion is illegal, even if somebody's been raped, even if there's um, a diagnosis of a fatal fetal abnormality. You know, there there's basically no exceptions. Um, and so if we want to change the law in any way, uh, we've got to alter the constitution and that has to happen through a referendum. Uh, we sort of recognise that a public vote on the right to abortion isn't necessarily the the easiest way to bring about legislative change. Um, and if there was another option, that's what we'd be would be looking for. Um, but because the Constitution, through Article forty point three point three, which is the Eighth Amendment, um, specifically references the right to life of the unborn, the only way to change our laws is is to remove that reference from the Constitution. Together for Yes has been an interesting campaign to observe because there's been a lot of kind of grassroots mobilizational tactics. It's been oriented in certain ways quite a lot around kind of young people, um, mass movements, crowdfunding, using kind of small donations on a large scale. What can you tell us about the kind of tactics that Together for Yes has been using? Um, well, so the Together for Yes campaign uh, actually just emerged this year in response to the date of the referendum being set. Um, but for for decades in Ireland, actually since before 1983, which was when the amendment was introduced into the constitution, um, there's been really significant act activism on the ground um, campaigning on this issue. Obviously, once the amendment was put into the constitution in 1983, um, that changed the frames of reference for the campaign. You know, now we realise if we were to change the law, if we were to reduce some of the restrictions on abortion, the only way to do that would be through a referendum. Um, so, you know, the issue has been talked about for, for decades, but Ireland since 1983 has gone through some really monumental social shifts. You know, if you look at the last 20 or 30 years, you know, divorce was only legalised again through referendum 1995 um, and 2015 saw the, the historic um, uh, referendum vote on, on the introduction of equal marriage. So it does feel like it's been a long time coming. Um, but the organised uh, and kind of more, I guess, high profile campaigning on this issue really sort of... Um, began I would say in the last sort of five or six years one of the most significant reasons for this was the tragic death of Savita Halpanavar in in 2012 um, and I think for a lot of people that really brought home the issue of of abortion and and the right to uh, to control your body 
um, under Ireland's constitution. Um, it became very obvious for me, for many activists, that not only does the Eighth Amendment also impact unwanted pregnancies, you know, Savita Halpanavar was 17 weeks pre pregnant when she began to miscarry, um, and the Eighth Amendment restricted her doctors to provide appropriate health care, and she ended up dying as a result of sepsis. Because of, of the Eighth Amendment, actually all pregnancies in Ireland are affected, but also there have been some really tragic cases of women, particularly young women, um, who are looking to, to have an abortion and are unable to do so under the, the current restrictions. Um, now, the, the different groups involved in campaigning to uh, change the laws around abortion, um, so groups like the Coalition uh, to Repeal the Eighth Amendment, the abortion rights campaign and its regional subgroups, um, organisations like the National Women's Council, Amnesty, um, have been working incredibly hard to, to change things. So in terms of, of grassroots mobilising, um, you know, we've seen some huge demonstrations, rallies, marches, um, events like this. Um, there's been a real, I think, sea change in terms of the use of, of uh, communications to talk about this you know quite high profile people in Ireland have come out publicly and said that they've traveled to England for an abortion they've had that experience and I think that's been really important in actually shifting the terms of the conversation you know abortion around the world is still uh, something that's seen as quite stigmatized people don't feel comfortable talking about their experiences but we need to have those conversations to change the law you know this is a referendum it's going to be it's going to be close, but we're confident that we we will win. But the only way that that will happen is is if people are standing up talking about what happened to them, uh, to their mothers, their sisters, their girlfriends, their daughters. Um, and it's through those little conversations that we've been really able to to actually shift the frame of the debate and, and hopefully um, to kind of remove the eighth and, and allow Ireland to provide compassionate health care. Um, in Ireland for, for the people who need it. Ireland has a history at this point, as you mentioned, of having referenda on social issues. And I think a difference that you were alluding to at the end of your last answer there between having a referendum on those kinds of questions and legislating for them by a parliament is that process whereby individuals have to come out and kind of actively participate in a debate about their own rights. And so we saw it with same-sex marriage in 2015. We saw it with divorce in the past as well and as you've said this referendum campaign so far uh, and activism around this issue for for quite a few years now has involved a lot of people feeling the need to come out and and give often very painful personal testimony um as you said the only way in which this issue can be dealt with in ireland legally speaking is via referendum which was not necessarily true of for example same-sex marriage depending on who you ask um but th that's that's a challenge isn't it the, the need to develop a kind of a a dialogue that is effective at persuading people but also i suppose one which does not necessarily um require so much of of the people who participate in it in terms of um that that's a very difficult balance to strike i guess oh it's hugely difficult um and you know there are particular groups and particular individuals who are facing really significant uh you know problems and and I guess burdens on this issue um, so the campaigning group Terminations for Medical Reasons Ireland which is an organisation of families and, and individuals who've, um, who've been diagnosed with fatal fetal abnormalities during pregnancies um, many of whom were forced to travel to England um, you know when 
when doctors at, at home in Ireland basically said you have no option other than to either wait until you know the the fetus dies um or to to carry it to full term with the um full knowledge that it's that the baby once it's born is is likely to to die almost immediately um the stories from from that group are absolutely heartbreaking uh and it is a, a really um yeah, it's a really devastating thing to not only have to go through, but then to constantly have to, you know, explain your circumstances in the face of, you know, honestly, really quite significant abuse from from some people uh, who very much disagree with their decision. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do as part of this campaign is also to to really encourage people who haven't necessarily had those experiences to recognise that everyone should have the right to make these decisions and a matter of of healthcare should be a decision between you know a, a person her family and and their doctor um it's not about uh you know changing every single person's mind as to whether they would actually have an abortion that's absolutely not what the the campaign is about we have hundreds of members thousands of members who would personally be be pro life but are very conscious that 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 decision might not be the right decision for everyone and so the important thing is is allowing that that range of opportunities allowing that choice because that is what is being denied uh people in ireland at the minute um but definitely it's a it's taking a a real toll on on some groups and individuals and it's one of the reasons that we're so keen to have everybody step up on this issue you know we've had really fantastic support from from demographic groups who initially people might think are you know less in favor of something like this so older people particularly older men um but some of the conversations we've been having through the campaign you know with canvassers out on the doorsteps is people saying well actually you know i was you know wasn't gonna campaign for for a yes vote and then my daughter said that she had an abortion and I didn't even know. Or, you know, I spoke to my doctor about it. And I think that's something that's really coming into the fore is that, you know, 10 Irish women every day travel to England for an abortion. Everyone in Ireland will know somebody who's made that journey. So it's just about bringing that out into the open and realizing that we don't have to keep doing this. We can we can bring those people home. And, and that's something that, that I think is really moving people and, and really shifting the debate. I think another important and related conversation which has begun to be had around this issue is, as you say, the sort of almost release valve that Ireland has had for a long time is the fact that Irish women who need and people who need abortions can travel to the UK and access them here to some extent. And in a way, I think that's probably served to help to suppress the issue because it, it acts it act as a kind of an outlet in that way. But I think an important conversation has begun to be had about the ways in which that kind of access is quite unequally distributed, both in terms of uh, people who can't afford to travel, but also people who aren't uh, legally able to travel, asylum seekers, people in direct provision. Um, and indeed now with uh, NHS cuts that are taking place now, um, uh, the actual provision of abortions to Irish women in the UK is being limited increasingly in major centres isn't it yeah that's true so we've seen uh, recently um some providers in liverpool who've said that they're not going to be able to to accommodate irish women and, and liverpool is a, a huge destination um for for these people traveling 
Um, you're absolutely right. The financial implications are hugely significant. The costs can range from £450 to over um, 13 or £1,400. You've got to bear in mind the majority of those who travel to England for an abortion are already parents. People are, are making decisions based on what's right for their families. And so that also includes arranging childcare, arranging time off work. Um, one of the, the groups that are significantly impacted as well are those who are in um, you know, relationships where there's um, coercion or even violence, you know, people who, who don't have access to, to be able to book those flights or ferries and make the decision by themselves, um, as well as very young people. You know, uh, we have uh, children and, and teenagers who are, who are also getting pregnant um, who also need um, access to a full range of, of reproductive health care. Um, so traveling is not... Uh, a, a successful solution um, by any stretch and we've actually seen a huge increase in the last few years of people ordering um, uh, medication online um, this medication's been classified as essential medicine by the World Health Organization but people are having to take it with no medical supervision you know afraid to go to their doctor if anything goes wrong they don't want to admit to having broken the law um, so it's a real you know, pressing issue. Um, and I think it, it really kind of brings home as well the the limitations of of how, even if we were to repeal um, the Eighth Amendment, that step in itself doesn't legalise abortion. You know, it's then up to um, government to introduce and obviously pass legislation um, to, to kind of lay out exactly how um, and on what grounds we're going to have uh, abortion access here in Ireland. Um, that's one of the, the key issues in the debate, obviously, is what will the legislation look like after the after the amendment is removed? Um, now, that's a really important debate to be had, and we're, we're talking a lot about that as well. But I think it's hugely important to emphasise to everybody that if, if there's to be any change in the law, the first and the only step can be to to remove the Eighth Amendment. Without that, we've got no chance of of changing any of the the current circumstances. So, so it's a really significant issue, and and the referendum will only be the first step in a long process towards um, full bodily autonomy for people in Ireland. Do you want to talk a little bit about the government's current proposed legislation and any shortcomings you see in it? Yeah. So the proposed legislation at the minute. Um, would uh, allow for access um, without restriction as to the grounds um, for up to 12 weeks gestational age um, and then beyond that with um, some very limited grounds um, particularly for things like fatal fetal abnormalities. Um, now without restriction as to reasons for up to 12 weeks has been seen by some campaigners as quite um, a significant or dramatic step um, that's not how we feel at all. Um, that number, the 12 week age and, and the fact that it's uh, without restriction as to reasons came out of the Citizens Assembly, uh, which was a deliberative group set up uh, in 2016. They met in 2017 all the way through um, to focus on uh, what Irish people um, would actually want from any future um, change in the legislation. Um, and that was reached specifically because if you have been raped and become pregnant as a result of that, um, there are very little effective ways of 
of managing that situation with regards to restriction on abortion. You know, we've seen in a number of very high profile cases recently how difficult it is to uh, to get a, a conviction for, for rape. You know, nobody wants to ask victims um, to be re-traumatized to have to go to court to prove that they should be allowed an abortion. Um, and it was felt very strongly by the Citizens' Assembly and the Joint Oireachtas Committee who, who debated this, that the only way to properly provide healthcare for, for rape victims who become pregnant uh, is this option of, of um, abortion with up to 12 weeks. Now, there will be many people who won't be served by this legislation that's not um, going to be enough. In fact, we do expect that there will still be people who have to travel um, if that that legislation is enacted. Um, But the reality is that it would be a a huge step forward in terms of what we're actually able to work with. It's really important to bear in mind that um, whilst the vast majority of abortions happen before 12 weeks, um, Irish people who travel to England actually have later abortions because of the added... um, difficulties and and restrictions with raising money organizing travel and and those kind of things so if if you're an opponent of late-term abortion um the best way to reduce numbers of late-term abortion is broad and unrestricted access to to early forms so that people are actually able to make those decisions and act on them um without having to delay the process which obviously causes extra um difficulties and and complications for for patients so that's a really important thing to bear in mind as well ireland is a country with very high youth emigration rates and one which does not allow postal voting from abroad so that's led to the need to get people to return home to actively cast their vote uh, to be something that is featured very prominently in campaigning uh, around the issue of a yes vote in this referendum do you want to talk a little bit about the home to vote campaign yeah, so as you said, Ireland has particularly strict laws on who can use postal voting. So for example, if you're an Irish student studying here in England, um, you're not eligible for a postal vote. If you want to vote in this referendum, you've got to physically go home and do that. Um, there are also very strict laws about who's actually eligible to vote in referendums. So you have to have been resident in Ireland within the last 18 months with the intention to return within that time frame. Um, but if you are an eligible voter, again, it's high numbers of students particularly, um, then going home to vote is one of the most important things that you can actually do. Um, as as we've sort of said as part of our home to vote campaign, you know, it's about making Ireland a place that you want to go back to, you know, that does respect the rights of, of everyone who lives there. Um, so the home to vote campaign, uh, which initially kind of emerged in uh, in 2015 with the referendum on equal marriage has been sort of rejuvenated by the the Together for Yes campaign. Uh, so our group, the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign, um, have set up a website, uh, hometovote.com, uh, where you can look up, um, you know, make sure that you're still on the register, make sure that you are um, going to be able to return home in terms of travel arrangements, um, so we're putting people in contact so they can get flights together. You know, if people want to get the boat over together, we're we're helping organize things like that. Um, but really, it's about kind of creating a, an environment, I guess, and a movement where where Irish people from all over the world want to come home and actually affect change on this issue. 
Um, so we've had really fantastic commitments from people coming home from, you know, the United States, Canada, Australia, all over Europe. Um, because as you said, Irish people are are all over the world. Um, obviously the voter restriction is, is very um, tight and that's really important that we're only encouraging people who are eligible to vote in this referendum to return. Um, but if you are eligible and you're you're looking for more information on the issue, I would really, really encourage it. Um, you know, in 2015, we saw huge numbers of people coming home and, and taking part in this. And, and we're hoping that the same thing will happen again. I think a lot of people I've spoken to, Irish people living in London, in Cambridge, um, are really keen to actually um, contribute in some way to this uh, campaign you know a lot of people feel especially being away from home that there's so little knowledge um, in the rest of the world about what Ireland's laws are what this campaign is actually about and um, so I think by pledging to come home to vote and and talking to your friends and family about it and um, you can have a really huge impact on on the campaign I, mean, I think forcing people to travel home if they want to vote and therefore to both to exercise their right to vote but also to you know, pursue their right to you know, reproductive access, reproductive rights, um, is you know, this way it increases the cost of doing that in a way that has required very specific forms of activism to develop around that in order to try and, I guess, help people to overcome that limitation that's being imposed upon them by the incredibly strict uh, voting laws that Ireland has. Um, and I think that's involved. There have been some discussion of uh, crowdfunding to support people to pay for travel. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a group called Abroad for Yes um, has been set up uh, to to help people um, uh, raise money and, and put people in contact if they're they're looking to, to go home. Um, I think the other thing that that we always really emphasize, you know, I've had a few people say, oh, you know, I've it's in the middle of my exams or, you know, I'll have to take time off work. And and our argument to that has always been, yeah, it is an inconvenience. Imagine also having to make that journey um, when you're pregnant and you don't want to be. And I think it's that argument and that kind of uh, reconstruction of that journey that's making a lot of people um really think about about what they're doing and actually has really encouraged a lot of people to travel and um, one of the things that we set up before christmas um was some luggage tags that you can buy um from our website um there they say healthcare not airfare um and i think that's a really important way of of kind of constructing the debate um so what we're looking to say to to irish people who are eligible to vote across the uk across the world is that yeah, it, it is a, a financial burden. It's going to take time out of your everyday life to go home and do this. But that's why we have to do it because we can't afford to keep um, sending women across the sea. We've got to, to bring compassion and, and healthcare home uh, and act for those people at home in Ireland. The language of human rights has featured prominently in the debate about access to abortion in Ireland for decades. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights, for example, has ruled that the lack of clarity on uh, who can access abortion in Ireland and under what circumstances uh, was a violation of the European Convention on Human Rights. And that resulted uh, or was one of the things which resulted in the passage of uh, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill, which served somewhat to clarify those issues in 2013. How important do you think that human rights institutions like the ECHR 
organizations like Amnesty, which you mentioned earlier in this interview, and I guess the broader language and rhetoric of human rights have been to this struggle. And are there any obvious limitations to kind of human rights discourse in its application to this issue? Um, I think they've been hugely important. Um, firstly, in terms of obviously framing the the debate for, for lots of people. Um, and also, I think primarily with, with organizations like the ECHR, um, raising awareness and, and kind of um, turning the spotlight on Ireland uh, around the world. Um, I think the the that's been something that's had a, a pretty significant impact um particularly amongst um the government i think um politicians became aware that they were um outliers in terms of of the provision of of human rights and i think that that has actually been a significant um factor in in the current kind of momentum for change that we're feeling um, certainly campaigning organizations like Amnesty contribute a huge amount to to, to our struggle. Um, so the executive director of Amnesty Ireland, Colm McGorman, has been a really kind of dedicated campaigner on this issue for a while. Having said all of that, I do think there are some limitations, particularly in the specific context of Ireland. We're, we're trying to win a referendum and the, the discourse of, of human rights and, and framing it in that way is not always the the one that that will have the biggest impact in terms of changing people's minds the other thing to mention of course is that we do see um the other side those who are campaigning to retain the eighth amendment uh, co-opting the language and and arguments of human rights um and structuring it around um you know the protection of of unborn life um that's not a, a framing of the argument that I think stands up to particular scrutiny, um, but it is something that's happening. So whilst for a lot of people, um, the the idea of, of abortion as a human right and particularly, you know, the rights to, to decide what healthcare we're able to access, you know, to make decisions about our own bodies has been hugely important. I think for some of the people whose minds we're trying to change in this referendum, it's not the most effective way of doing it. Um, so we're trying to rely on a really wide range of different structures, different conversations, different points and, and things to kind of really reach as many people as we can. Um, I think our position, uh, the position of Together for Yes, the position of, of everyone who's, who's an activist in this campaign is that the, the facts and the reality of the situation are um, overwhelmingly pointing towards um, the need for, for abortion access in Ireland. Whether you reach that conclusion through um, understanding it as a human rights discourse or whether your cousin from up the road tells you her story, I think it's we'll, we'll be using whatever channels and whatever resources we can to, to get the, the campaign over the line because... Ireland can't wait any longer. This is happening and it's got to happen now. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing with us your perspective as an activist. It's been great talking to you. Thanks very much. 